0: and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Forgery was the white lie of the medieval era, with some of Europe's leading holy men cooking up counterfeit documents to rewrite the past as they thought it should have happened. These forged texts, are the subject of today's conversation with Levi Roach, Associate Professor of History at the University of Exeter and the author of Forgery in Memory at the End of the First Millennium. Levi also wrote a feature on medieval forgeries for the February issue of BBC History magazine and our content director, David Musgrove, called him to find out more.
2: Levi, you've been on the podcast before, so uh, good to have you back. Thanks for joining us again. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Um, So you've written a a feature for BBC History magazine on this topic of uh, of forgery and memory. Um, And in it you say, in your opening uh, section, few regions in world history can rival medieval Europe for the sheer scale of forging. So that's quite an exciting comment. We need to find out what's going on. So um, drop us into it. Who was forging what?
3: So what we're talking about is largely religious establishments, so um, religious houses like monasteries and cathedrals, forging, above all, documents, uh, legal documents that we call charters, particularly uh, securing them rights over property or often also rights to preferential treatment, so sometimes uh, rights to remove them from the authority, say, of the king or of their local bishops if we're dealing with uh, monasteries or smaller religious houses. And is this uh, a wide European thing
2: or specifically British? Where's the main geographical areas?
3: It's something we see across Western Europe and indeed pretty much anywhere where we have rich documentary records and people are valuing charters, people are also forging them. So we can sort of see a growth in tandem of the use of the written word over the Middle Ages and then the recourse to forgery, because the more people value written documents, the more likely people are to forge them. A bit like in the modern world, people frequently forge currency. So it's it's the it's a sign of the value that's uh, accorded these documents.
2: And when is this going on? What's the, what's the heyday?
3: So the heyday is almost certainly what we might call a long 12th century from about, say, 1050 up till about um, 1200, 1250. But it's something that we can see as early in many regions as the 9th or 10th centuries and continues in some form or another right through the Middle Ages.
2: And is is there a particular reason why uh, that period that you outlined is the heyday, and why does it why does it sort of tail off after that?
3: So I think there's two key things that are going on there that combine to make it the real uh, focus and real heyday. On the one hand, it's a period from the ninth century, I would say onwards, where we're seeing steady growth in recourse to the written word. So people are using documents more and more, and therefore people are also forging and faking them more and more. But it's also a period where we're seeing new kinds of attitudes to the past, particularly within these sorts of religious houses. So they're starting to write histories not only of nations or of kings, but also of individual religious institutions, so writing a history of your local monastery, a history of your local cathedral. And when they set out to do this, of course, they need to have evidence of what happened in the past. Uh, And there was this strong belief that, of course, uh, any serious respectable House should have an honorable history. Their their position, their um, uh, power and authority that they have in the moment, they like to see reflected in past glories. And where they can't find evidence of those, there is then a strong temptation to fill in the gaps. So on the one hand, sometimes this is, you know, uh, uh, directly legal forgery, trying to claim rights and lands off somebody else, but sometimes it's about imagining what the history of your bishopric was like, or what it ought to have been like, creating the kinds of records you felt should have been there, but that weren't there when you went looking.
2: So can you give us uh, an example or two of, 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 of this in practice? Um, just uh, someone who did some forging and why they might have done it.
3: So a nice example is one that I explore in the feature you mentioned for the magazine, which is that of Bishop Pilgrim of Passau. He's Bishop of Passau in the very southeast of modern Bavaria, just near the Austrian border, um, which is also a bit of a border town even in that period, but um, partly also with um, the um, uh, Bohemian Kingdom, the the ancestor of modern Czech Republic to the north. Um, And he's Bishop there in the late 10th century. And the thing for Pilgrim that's really fascinating is that we seem to be able to see these kinds of processes at work, because he's been trained... Elsewhere. He's been trained at the monastery of Niederalteich, further up the Danube River, also in Bavaria, and probably also at the Archbishopric of Salzburg, which is his uh, regional archbishopric, i.e., his immediate superior in the ecclesiastical uh, hierarchy. And at those centers, there are strong traditions of historical writing, particularly at Salzburg, where they're very, very proud of their history and of their status as the regional archbishop. And when he comes to Passau, it's quite clear that Pilgrim wants to see something similar. He wants to see evidence for how um, his bishopric has evolved, what its ideally glorious past might be. And what he finds is very little, indeed, uh, very little evidence of its earlier existence at all. And so he starts piecing together little bits and pieces from what narrative sources he does have. And so he has a mention, for example, of a bishop um, or of a pontiff. He's called in Latin pontifex being based um, at the town of Lorch, which is within his diocese. Um, In modern Austria, but it's within uh, the Passau diocese. He encounters a reference to a pontiff there in the late antique period um, uh, in the 5th century. And on that basis, as well as on the basis of archaeological remains there, he comes to the conclusion that this was an immediate lineal ancestor of his own um, bishopric. And indeed, he concludes that because Lorch was a very important center, and because pontiff, pontifex in Latin, is an ambiguous term, which can be used, for example, of the Pope or an archbishop just as much as a bishop, that in fact there was once a regional archbishopric there. And so he's been conditioned from what he's seen in Salzburg to want to see glorious pass. And indeed, there's a bit of a, a rivalry there with the archbishop of Salzburg, who's his own uncle. And so he concludes as a, um, that Passau was in fact once an archbishopric. And in fact, was the rightful archbishopric for Bavaria, but had simply lost this status in later years because of upheaval, uh, because of attacks of the groups of the Huns and then the later Avars. And again, he's read of these in historical his historical sources. So these provide him with also the explanation for why his records are so lean. There's been a lot of upheaval in his uh, upheaval in his region, and to his mind, that's what led to his uh, bishopric having to move up the Danube River from Nuremberg and having lost its earlier status as um, a rightful archbishopric.
2: Um, we'll come back to that example um, a bit later on, hopefully just to sort of uh, test the effectiveness or otherwise of, of his work. But you mentioned um, uh, archaeological remains there and uh, and the fact that there wasn't much going on with that. Did people ever try and forge anything beyond documents? Did people try and forge um, artefacts or, or, or buildings or anything like that to try and uh, to add weight to their arguments?
3: They absolutely did. So there's not a lot of evidence of... Uh, formal archaeological forgery, like we see it, say in the modern world. So sometimes nowadays people will forge artifacts and then try to sell them uh, on the antiquities market. But what we do see are evident are attempts at times to forge uh, material objects, like particularly saints' relics, at least that we might now consider forgery. So people are often being very inventive, passing off bones that are much more recent ones as saints'. Um, bones and things like that. And that's because, of course, there's a very active market in the Middle Ages for buying relics. So that's probably your closest one to that. If we go earlier than the Middle Ages, we have evidence for what we call epigraphic forgery. So people in the ancient world, for example, where they often uh, carved uh, uh, documents, particularly for particularly important um, religious houses, granting them rights, we have cases of forging inscriptions from ancient Egypt, for example, and um, uh, the ancient Middle East. Brilliant.
2: Um, now, you, you, so when you're outlining things earlier, you said that it was this is broadly a, a religious sort of an ecclesiastical habit. Um, so, does it not extend to uh, to secular law? So, say for instance, you, you mentioned that it was you know one of the reasons for doing it might be if you wanted to demonstrate your uh, your ownership of a piece of land. So, if I was a, a secular lord of somewhere and I wanted to say, well, I clearly have always owned that castle, but I don't have any 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 documents to back it up. Would I be able to go in there and, and set up some sort of forgery to prove my claim? By
3: the later Middle Ages, we do start seeing that. But we see it first amongst religious houses, partly because they're the best um, recorded cases. So we we have most of our records survive via religious houses, even for um, laymen. So the chances of us knowing about forgery in the religious context is much higher. Uh, but it's also quite clear that it starts there because they are the pioneers of the use of the written word and it extends from the church outwards. So it also does make sense that they would be the front runners here. But we do absolutely, uh, by the Central to later Middle Ages, have some good examples of laymen doing so, often employing churchmen to do this on their behalf, though. Um, So a very famous case from Austria is the so-called Privilegium Maius which is uh, meant to be uh, a privilege granting rights to the local Duke of Austria. And it claims to be issued by a Roman emperor. It's completely bogus um, and indeed was um, seen through by some of the um, early Italian humanists, uh, identified it as a forgery quite early on. Um, but it's a good example of uh, a layman wanting to do the same kind of thing, of suggesting that they, they, they want a set of rights, and the best way to do this is to project this into a kind of glorious past. So it does happen, but there's a bit of a time lag. The church starts doing it, and laymen sort of start catching up later, and we see a bit less of what they're doing as well, even then.
2: And do we have any evidence, so we'll talk in a a second or two about how you uh, identify forgeries, but do we have any evidence um, of anyone admitting to having done forgery in in a letter or in a document or anything like that from the period?
3: So a famous case is Guerno, the forger. We do have one confession from a forger where he does seem to have um, uh, what, what purports to be a record of his deathbed confession, saying that he was indeed a forger. But that's the closest we come. In general, we don't have a lot of insight into this. The other one example we have of some discussion is from late antiquity, and that is from um, Salvian of Marseille, who writes a tract in the name of the Apostle Timothy. Um, And he is accused of forging this text and of adopting his name. And in response, he basically admits to it and says, well, I only did this because I knew that these teachings would reach a wider audience this way. So it's kind of ends justifies the means. But he does kind of acknowledge that he has been deceitful. He did hope that people would think it was Timothy because people would accord something from the Apostle a greater weight than they would just something from, you know, local Salvian from down the road.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: The thing that most appeals to me about forgeries is that they allow us to see the concrete hopes, dreams, and concerns of people of the period. Um, Because forged documents are, by their nature, not really bound by historical reality, these are um, our clearest insights into actually um, what people wanted the world to be like, their own kind of uh, uh, deepest desires.
4: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down.
1: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless had it to get 30 30 bit get 30 bit get 20 20 20 get 20 20 get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch.
0: slash $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Okay, so we haven't got much by way of confessions. So how how do we know that these forgeries happened? You've got in in the feature you've written for the magazine, you've got a lovely example of a of a, of a document where you prove you demonstrate uh, the sorts of things that you're looking for as a historian to identify it. So do you just want to give us a, a bit of a taste about how you go about identifying a forgery?
3: Yeah. So one of the things is, although we don't have confessions, we do have a lot of. Th- evidence of contemporaries talking about forgery and worrying about it, which is evidence that it's happening. So they're well aware that this is going on, even if we don't have them admitting to it. And then when we look at the records ourselves, that's where we can really start to see this. And the the key thing that we use there as historians is we use as a basis records that we are uh, 100% sure are authentic. Uh, And we compare contemporary documents to other contemporary documents to sort of slowly establish a picture of what a good Pucka document from any given period would be. Um, And the kind of best scenario we have there is these documents that survive in their original format. So rather than in later copies, that gets a bit trickier. But when we have a document that survives um, uh, in its original format or what purports to be its original format, we can then take a look very closely um, at its features. And the things we're looking at are things like script is a key indicator there because handwriting changes over time. It does even in the modern world. And a trained paleographer, somebody who studies this script, can normally date a hand within 50 years easily, sometimes even more narrowly. So if something's produced later, we can often tell because it has um, uh, later forms of handwriting. And even if you try to imitate earlier forms, and we see this, um, good forgers are aware that script changes over time, you're unlikely to be able to do so Consistently across a long document. So you might manage a word or two, but if you continue, the concentration is too great, you get what um, uh, we call faker's palsy. The concentration is simply cannot hold up for an entire document. So at various points, you will either slip back to your native forms or there will be a very clear instability of the script because you're looking at something else constantly back and forth and trying to copy it. It's not the kind of fluid writing as if you were writing naturally. So, script is one absolutely key feature. Other things we look at are more general aspects of the document, so elements of layout. Again, that changes over time. Conventions change slowly but subtly for these documents. We'll also look at formulation after script, and this is particularly important if we only have a document in a later copy. Again, styles of Latin formulation, what things are in and out in terms of terms and terminology, change over time. And again, a forger will often... um, simply by accident, import one or two, may only be one or two little bits, but of his own native um, uh, assumptions of the kind of documentary world in which he or she normally lives. Um, Finally, we would look very closely at things like the seal, if it's a sealed document, because seals are very hard to forge accurately. And indeed, um, uh, the very best forgers will often try to detach a seal from an authentic document and then reattach it to another document. But again, that normally does some kind of damage to the seal. So the, the best truly authentic documents are in a contemporary hand, contemporary formulation with a clearly authentic seal. If any of those are not the case, we start getting very suspicious. And the key thing in all of these cases are what we're looking for is what we call anachronisms. So things that don't belong in the period that are appearing in the period. Um, and the most common of these are simply uh, importing formulation, um, or script or seals, um, from the period in which the documents produced. So they may give hints as to that. Occasionally we see the reverse though. Um, so-called hyperarchaism, where somebody knows they need to make these things look older, but they get it wrong and go too old. They overcompensate if you will. But again, it's simply because they don't inhabit the natural documentary world they're trying to evoke. So they're going to slip up, uh, more or less subtly some of the time. I think
2: hyperarchaism is 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 one of my new favourite words. It's a fan, fantastic concept. So so look, you're you you and your your um your paleographical colleagues uh, have to you know do some pretty serious forensic work to 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 spot these forges. I guess sometimes it's obvious, but but from what you're describing, it's you know you have to know what you're doing to 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 look at these sort of stuff. So the forgers presumably knew what they were doing. They knew that they were trying. They were doing their level best to try and make these uh, documents look of of the period. They're expecting which which then uh, goes on to suggest that people the the, the audience they were forging for uh, would have been uh, sensible to those changes as well so um, so there's a the, the, that's that indicates that there's a big uh, uh, effort there for people to understand and really really have have a good knowledge of what these sorts of documents uh, look like and should have looked like so um, uh, the historians the paleographer's
3: eye was there back in the day as well. Yeah, no, there clearly were efforts already in the Middle Ages to criticize these documents and this keen awareness that forgery could and did happen. And that's why, as you say, the best forgers really do go the extra mile. Um, And in terms of forgery, we do have the whole gamut. We have some that are very obvious to modern eyes that have never really passed muster in the modern period. But there are others that have only very recently been uncovered. And some of the very best forgeries we probably haven't even detected yet, So um, there clearly is, as you say, an awareness um, amongst contemporaries that forgery is going on and that forgers have a very good sense of what they need to be doing. And so, for example, pilgrims forgeries pass for authentic until the 1850s, really, until we start getting the modern, um, uh, serious academic study of histories applied to them. And then there's enough that make them sort of stand out that they can be identified. But till then, nobody knew any better.
2: Are there any um, sort of documents or charters that uh, that are kind of under suspicion
3: at the moment that, uh, that historians and your colleagues are, are a bit worried about? I wouldn't say in terms of sort of foundational documents, but there are certainly a lot of documents that inhabit a kind of world between completely uh, authentic and completely forged. So while we often focus on the nice examples where we know 100%, there are a lot of documents where we, for example, might suspect somebody's tampered with them a little bit, particularly in these cases where they survive in later copies. So where we can't test the seals, where we can't test the handwriting, when we don't have all of those things, it often inhabits this kind of gray area where we we know there's enough, say, authentic formulation that it must be based on something authentic, but there's a few fishy items that also make us put a small question mark. So we do operate very much in kind of shades of gray and degrees of forgery and degrees of authenticity. Right.
2: So, uh, we've got this basically fake news coming out of monasteries and and, and religious houses uh, in in this period. Then, so how does that square with ideas of ecclesiastical probity and honesty? I mean, how it be, Surely, you know, and you mentioned you know the forger who with a conscience earlier. How how does that work? Because surely they knew that they were doing something
3: which was deceitful. What? It is one of the central um, uh, problems this material raises, but I think it's a problem that's more apparent than real because the paradox somewhat resolves itself when we actually go back to the faith of those individuals. So you're right to say that people are trying to deceive, and I think we do need to um, acknowledge this. Sometimes historians have said that medieval forages were actually not trying to deceive at all, that they were just, you know, um, um, completely pious in their motives. I think it's quite clear they want to trick people in terms of this. But it is very much an ends justifies the means morality. Um, And actually, this modern world of fake news and things like that, I think, is one of the places where in the modern world we get very close to this. Because of course, we have, for example, in a recent US election, an American evangelical um, uh, uh, vote that went largely to an individual they would not hold up to be very moral in the person, say, of Donald Trump. But the feeling was that he was someone who could be counted upon to appoint good moral people to the high court and things like that. So in terms of this, for our medieval forgers, what they are producing is what they feel ought to have been there. So for someone like Pilgrim, He's looking at this, and yes, he wants these to pass for the real thing, but he imagines these are the kinds of documents that Paso had but had lost. So it is forgery in the name of a greater cause. It's a white lie. It's producing what ought to have been there. He's just, in that sense, fulfilling um, a kind of greater divine will. So we're in that world, I think we're operating with people who are very convinced of the morality of their case. And therefore, they have a kind of uh, conviction that will move documentary mountains.
2: And going back to Pilgrim, were his
3: his forgeries effective? Did he achieve his aims? He doesn't, as far as we can tell at all. And the interesting question with his is, because his most uh, egregious ones really make very wide-ranging claims, the interesting question is whether or not he actually ever expected them to take full effect. So the traditional reading has been that he wanted to be archbishop and he was hoping these would allow him to become so. But we have no evidence that he ever showed them to the emperor or to the pope. Indeed, the only people who seem to be aware of them outside of Passau are um, the archbishop and the canons of Salzburg. And so it may well be much more that these are about local rivalries and about kind of uh, 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 having a bit of a pot shot at Salzburg, and they then produce, in fact, some counter-forgeries to answer them. So there does seem to be a bit of sparring and a bit of a war of words there. But we may well imagine these actually being intended more for a kind of local audience. The pilgrim is probably trying to preach to the converted, telling people in Passau that Passau had a great and glorious past, rather than necessarily expecting people elsewhere to believe it. And in Passau, these forgeries are accepted as authentic, um, well into the 18th, and indeed, in some circles, into the late 19th century.
2: So, um, so that's really interesting—is this idea that uh, a forger might be countered by a counter-forger, and 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 the sense that people who were doing the forgeries. Uh, their intended audience were probably au okay fait with the fact that forgeries were going on. So why did anyone believe anything in this period then? In the, if if everyone was sort of aware that forgery was happening and it was you know quite a wide scale industry, why did anyone to have any faith in any of these charters?
3: So I think people were cynical and indeed became increasingly so as the number of forgeries increased. And we do have um, uh, at times some commentators talking about documents being worthless and things like that. So there there certainly is an element of uh, 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 jadedness that we see in some writers. Uh, but I think one of the reasons why people did tr- continue to use these documents to trust them is because they fell into the same kind of trap that fake news is meant to do. Is it preaching to people who want to believe this in the first place? And again, people who tend to have a very moralistic view of the past that may be very different from ours. So true history from the perspective of a medieval historical writer or a forger, and it should be noted many historians were forgers as well. There's a massive overlap between the two activities. But true history was that which um, uh, which was events as God ordained them to have happened, not necessarily that past which was evidenced by the documents you had to hand. So there was often an element of doublethink in historical writing, anyway, in the way people understood the past. And so, this game of forgery and counterforgery makes perfect sense because, on both sides, people want to believe that the other side is wrong. And so, they're likely to fall into the same kinds of traps. And it's a very similar culture there um, in terms of the way documents are being treated in the Middle Ages to what we see with uh, more theological. Uh, treatises in the antique world, particularly in the world of early Christendom, where we see a lot of forging in the names of the early apostles, often from different dogmatic perspectives. But people on both sides were kind of more than happy to believe forgeries that reaffirmed what they thought was always true, but were very quick to doubt anything that contradicted them, even if sometimes it was authentic as well. So you've kind of got this fundamental belief that my church is right, and therefore the documents that accord with their version of the past is going to be right. And anything that contradicts that is, you know, going to be false full stop.
2: Have any of the uh, of the forged documents or sources that you've looked at, um, did, did any of them actually directly and clearly influence uh, an event or change the course of, of, uh, of, of some legal um, wrangling or anything like that? Did, did any of them
3: clearly do something? Yes, absolutely. So we have some very nice ones from England, for example, that I look at in the book from the 990s, and what's happened there is we're in the reign of the rather infamous King Ethelred the Unready. Um, and the thing that Ethelred is facing is, on the one hand, Viking attacks on his kingdom starting in the 990s. But before then, in his early days of reign, he'd taken various lands and rights from the church, um, particularly in the late 980s. And when the Vikings arrive, he and his counsellors sort of uh, come to the conclusion, doubtless under some pressure here, that this was divine punishment for taking lands from the church earlier. And so he goes ahead and restores various lands to the churches he'd previously despoiled. Now, interestingly enough, in at least two cases, at the Old Minster in Winchester—that is, Winchester Cathedral—and at Rochester Cathedral, the documents he issues echo the terms of forgeries claiming those lands. And we also, in both cases, have earlier documents in which Ethelred granted out those lands to to his own lay favorites. So what we have is a scenario where almost certainly what's happened is the king has nicked these lands from the church, granted them to his mates the churches themselves have forged documents to prove their earlier ownership, because evidently they didn't have documents proving this, or insufficient evidence. And then they've rocked up in the 990s now that the king's changed his tune, saying, hey, look, that land you granted, here's the evidence, it should be ours. And he's granted it back to them, but on the terms, and echoing uh, the terms of those documents they've produced before him that are forgeries. And some of those, in fact, both of those two cases at Rochester and Winchester, they are in imitative hands, those kinds of um, archaizing hands. Um, and in the Winchester case, they go too far. So that's a nice case of hyperarchaism. They get the script too early by about a hundred years. It looks way too old for what they're claiming.
2: Good old effort. He, and he's, uh, we should mention, he's a, he's a chap you know a little bit about um, having written uh, a biography of him. So
3: y- Yes, no, exactly. In fact, that. There's a connection between the two projects that no one else would necessarily otherwise note but me. But is um, when I was finishing the Ethelred book, one of the things that really struck me was just how much forgery was going on in his England. And the more I thought of it, the more I realized that actually the later 10th century is a period where we start seeing the start of that kind of boom that I talked about that reaches its um, a high point in the 12th century. And so uh, the idea was to, in fact, pursue the question of why was there so much forgery? in later 10th century uh, Western Europe, including Ethelred's England. So one of the chapters is is kind of an extended uh, meditation on what was about two, three pages of the Ethelred biography.
2: To wrap up, um, all this forgery going on, um, what does it tell us more generally about uh, early medieval society, society in the long 12th century,
3: Yeah, so I think one of the fundamental things that gives us insight into is these new attitudes towards the past, this new interest in the past that was partly about concrete legal rights um, and responsibilities and things like that, but was also about having a glorious um, and long history for your religious house. And this tradition of writing local history is something that is developing side by side with forgery, reinforcing each other um, in various interesting and complex ways, and so people have talked a lot about how, in the eleventh and twelfth centuries, we see a real boom in historical writing, and I think that needs to be understood very much alongside this. These are reinforcing each other and are suggesting new a kind of newfound appreciation for the um, the past and the past's alterity, a kind of a newfound appreciation uh, for long history in that kind of sense. So I think it it provides some very important, um, uh, filling out of uh, our understanding of these processes and rounding out of that, that it's not just done by narrative history. But I think also, perhaps in a more fundamental way, the thing that most appeals to me about forgeries is that they allow us to see the concrete hopes, dreams, and concerns of people of the period. Um, Because forged documents are, by their nature, not really bound by historical reality, these are Um, our clearest insights into actually um, what people wanted the world to be like, their own kind of uh, uh, deepest desires, what Carl Leiser famously called the "ought world of the Middle Ages. So what did people think about when they tried to imagine these kinds of worlds? So in that sense, it's almost a bit like the way that uh, things like science fiction can give modern historians insights into periods and their preoccupations. Through what people are forging, we get a much better idea of what their social, religious, legal and other concerns were because those documents aren't constrained by facts. They aren't constrained by awkward circumstances. They give them that opportunity to, to kind of write history as it ought to have been rather than as it necessarily was.
0: That was Levi Roach. His book Forgery and Memory at the End of the First Millennium is published now by Princeton University Press. Levi also wrote a feature investigating this subject, in the February issue of BBC History magazine. That's available now and also includes features on The dissolution of the Monastery, The Blitz, Henry VI and Sutton Hoo. If you're into medieval history, then make sure you're signed up for our fortnightly medieval newsletter. Just go to historyextra.com forward slash newsletters. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow to hear about London's turbulent 17th century.